We'll hear argument today in case 08205, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. Mr. Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, participation in the political process is the First Amendment's most fundamental guarantee. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. We will continue to shape the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. Citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more. Applied Political Philosophy. You're listening to the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast, Episode 2, Changing the System from Within the System. I'm Nigel Wilkerson. Today, I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jack Miller about political reform, what he calls Applied Political Philosophy. I appreciate you giving me more of your time, Dr. Miller. Of course, Nigel, anytime. It's a pleasure talking with you. In our last conversation, you discussed how political reform is guided and inspired by democratic theory and the critiques of existing systems that democratic theory makes possible. I was left wondering, though, what exactly you think political reform is. Can you give me your definition as precisely as possible? Well, I will, uh, I'll try to be precise. I, I think the easiest way to understand what political reform is is to contrast it with other types of reform. Because we hear the word reform all the time. There's immigration reform, tax reform, education reform, all of that. In my view, those are all what I would call policy reform. That's where people who are working in the political system, elected officials, lobbyists, advocates, campaigners, are trying to change policy in a particular area to go from where it is today to some change that they think will be an improvement. So healthcare reform, for example, is an attempt to, you know, for some people to make sure that more people are covered, that there is better coverage, it's more affordable, et cetera, et cetera. That's policy reform. Working within the political system, the American democratic system, to achieve policy goals. Political reform uses the same system. It uses the American system of democracy for a different purpose. It uses the system of democracy to transform the system of democracy itself. So political reform is making changes to the democratic system by using the avenues of democratic politics to bring about those changes. I'm not sure how precise that is in terms of a nice dictionary definition, but that's where I'm gonna uh, that's where I'm gonna land right now. So, if I understand you correctly, your definition of political reform is the effort to transform the underlying system of policymaking by using the policymaking system itself. It's essentially changing the system from within the system. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty nice, precise way to put it. Thanks, Nigel. Can you talk about the opportunities for enacting political reform through the existing political system? What are they and how do they function? Well, you know, the American democratic system is actually pretty diverse in terms of avenues for reform. Um, And that's true for policy reform as well as for political reform. That is to say there are multiple ways to bring about the changes that you want to see in the world. Now, if you're a political reformer, the changes that you want to see are changing the nature of the political system itself, the electoral system, the rules of campaign finance, the way the institutions of government function, the system of checks and balances, that kind of thing. That's all the target of political reform proposals as opposed to, say, policy reform proposals, which aim to change what the government does. So a healthcare reform proposal would be 
to change the way the government regulates or interacts with the healthcare system or participates in the system. Political reform is an attempt to change the nature of the system, which is an interesting thing because there are already so many rules and procedures and institutions that are involved in our political system. Our political system itself is governed by, is dictated, is outlined by a constitution. And because the U.S. has a federal system, we don't have a constitution. We actually have 51 constitutions. We have the federal constitution, the United States constitution, as well as the constitution of every state. And they're all different. If you're talking about changing the nature of the system, changing the constitution is, of course, the most foundational way to do that. If, for example, you think that people who are running the executive branch of the state or of the federal government shouldn't be able to continue just serving endless term after term after term, then you're going to want to maybe put a term limit on that executive. Uh, and a lot of states have two-term term limits for their governors. We now at the federal level have two-term limit for the president. In the case of the U.S. Constitution, it was a foundational change to the Constitution. A lot of state constitutions actually just built that right into the original state constitution, two-term limit. The idea of changing the Constitution itself through the amendment process is really the primary and fundamental way to achieve political reform. It is also the biggest, most permanent, most lasting method. Now, it's not permanent, permanent in the sense of it's etched in stone because a constitution can be amended. And so amendments can be amended. They can be repealed. They can be edited. It's not permanent. Nothing in a democratic system is fully permanent. Some things have a higher level of permanency and a constitutional amendment is the highest level of permanency. Our Constitution isn't the only thing, though, that governs the way our political system functions, especially at the federal level where our Constitution doesn't have a whole lot of words. There's a lot more regulating that needs to be done to ensure that a political system can actually function. So there needs to be statutes, laws that are passed by the legislature that further elaborate what the Constitution outlines in terms of how our political system works. Here's one good example is campaign finance. The U.S. Constitution does not contain limits on spending or donations or raising money, but Congress has occasionally passed regulations that limit the kinds of contributions people can make, the amounts, the way money can be raised, the way money can be spent. That is a form of political reform that happens through the statutory avenue, and that's because the Constitution can't possibly say everything about how the political system works. There are also just mechanisms that need to be elaborated. So, for example, if your Constitution guarantees you the right to vote, there's no voting until there's an election day. There's no election day processes until those processes are passed. Where are the voting booths? What does the ballot look like? Who counts them? All of that stuff. All of the details of how an electoral system function have to be created through statutes. And there's a massive body of statutory law related to the way our political system works. And that body of statutory law is passed through the legislature. So another avenue of political reform is through legislative action, passing new laws, amending existing laws, passing laws that didn't exist. At one point, there were no laws regulating money in the democratic system. So the very first campaign finance laws were uh, filling in a place that didn't exist. There was, there was no regulation. And now that there are some regulations, there will be reform to those regulations. So campaign finance reform changes those rules, adds, subtracts, transforms. 
So the statutory avenue is actually a pretty wide one because there are a ton of laws dictating how our political system functions, particularly the electoral system. This type of change is less, say, high order because it doesn't transform the basic document itself. It transforms the vast body of statutory law that governs the way our political system functions. Because a lot of states actually also have direct democracy that allows the citizens through the initiative to directly make statutory law, that is a third avenue. We don't have that at the federal level, uh, and only about half the states do have it. But in the half the states that do, that means there's a third avenue. You can change statutory law, not through the representative system, the legislature, but directly through a ballot measure. All laws are also subject to judicial review. Courts can and often do evaluate the constitutionality of the many statutes that apply in all areas of life. To the extent that the judiciary can, through the act of judicial review, overturn laws that were passed and sometimes transform the interpretation of those laws even when they're not overturned, the judiciary is a fourth avenue for achieving reform. Now, the interesting thing about the judicial avenue is that it is probably the easiest one to achieve. You don't have to go through the cumbersome process of amending a constitution or passing a law or getting signatures to get a ballot measure on the ballot and then getting it passed. The judicial avenue can be achieved by a small handful of people. A single judge, when it's a district trial, a panel of only three judges at the circuit appellate court level, and then, of course, nine of the Supreme Court justices, and really not nine, five of the nine people. So the number of individuals that it takes to effectuate a political reform or any reform through the judiciary is much smaller, but it's a much more narrow lane because not every question can be adjudicated. So the judicial reform avenue is very tempting because it doesn't take convincing a lot of people and the judiciary is kind of functioning all the time, holding cases and evaluating statutes all the time. But the questions that can be addressed through the judiciary are much more narrow. Whereas if you want to amend a constitution, you can do anything. It's a blank slate. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's a blank slate. That's fascinating. It, it almost seems as though with all of these avenues, political reform can happen all over the place in America, but it doesn't seem like that's actually the case. Can you talk about the obstacles to using each of these avenues of reform, or perhaps I should say potential avenues? Yeah, well, right. There are four potential avenues, and each of them has major obstacles to them. And I'll start with the biggest one, which is the constitutional avenue. Amending a constitution, or in the case of the biggest change, like replacing a constitution. And that actually happens. Like most states aren't operating on their first or even their second constitution. State constitutions get replaced. But what's more frequent is amending. Now, the amendment process is different depending on which constitution you're talking about. The U.S. Constitution has a very high threshold for amendment. It's actually a two-tiered supermajority system. First, you have to get two-thirds of both houses of Congress to pass uh, an amendment proposal, and then that goes on to the states, and three-quarters of the states have to ratify an amendment before it becomes part of the U.S. Constitution. This two-tiered supermajority system is an extraordinarily high bar to cross, and it has not been crossed very often. Now, state constitutions, they vary, but Almost every state constitution is easier 
to amend than the U.S. Constitution. Some state constitutions require simply a ballot measure that gets passed by a simple majority of the voters in that election. Often, the signature threshold of getting that ballot measure onto the ballot is higher than for a normal initiative, but not substantially higher. So some states, and Oregon happens to be one of those, we can amend our state constitution with 50% of the vote on a ballot measure that has a you know higher but not significantly super high signature threshold. Pretty much everything in between. Some states actually require the legislature to pass amendments and then for that amendment to be ratified by the people in a referendum with a 50% vote. So that would be a two-tiered majoritarian system, 50% of the legislature and then 50% of the people. Some states actually have a supermajority for the legislature and then a simple majority for the popular referendum. There's all kinds of differences between all of the states as there are in, in many areas. And so the difficulty of pursuing the constitutional amendment avenue of political reform really varies from Oregon, I would say at the lowest end of difficulty, to the U.S. Constitution at the highest end and with lots and lots of stuff in between. The obstacles in the case of amending the U.S. Constitution are almost insurmountable. And the obstacles for a lot of state constitutions are more difficult than sort of just achieving a normal statutory reform, but not significantly different. Now, the, the sort of the next hardest would be the statutory avenue, getting the legislature to pass a political reform. This has a different sort of trickiness to it. Uh, it's simpler in terms of the technical aspects, right? If Congress is going to enact a political reform, say Congress is going to mandate a nationwide one-month early voting period for elections. That would be a reform to the way our political system functions. Instead of having an election day, mandating that every state actually have one month of early voting. To pass a law like that is simple in terms of the constitutional mechanisms. It just requires a majority of both houses of Congress and the signature of the president, which is a thing that happens, I mean, I won't say all the time because Congress doesn't pass laws all the time, but it's that's a normal routine piece of legislative business. The obstacle there is that when elected officials who are winners under the current system, that's why they're there, they won elections, are considering changes to the electoral system, they're considering changes to a system they're already doing well under, and so they don't really have a built-in incentive to change that system. If you're a winner, why would you change the rules that make you a winner? That could create an uncertain future that makes it harder for you to win. I mean, if you're already raising enough money to get elected to Congress, why would you want to limit fundraising opportunities unless you thought that was going to give you a further advantage in getting reelected? So the statutory realm, basically, because it's people who are winners in the political system, reforms that make it harder for elected officials to continue winning are less likely to get passed. The two remaining avenues direct democracy and the judicial avenue are actually very much simpler, and the obstacles are not as problematic. The thing about both direct democracy and the judicial avenue is they are narrower. Not every question can be adjudicated for constitutionality. And so, for example, if you wanted to achieve a term limit for members of Congress or state legislatures, unless there's some kind of constitutional provision that you can draw on to adjudicate a current law, which there really isn't, then you can't achieve that kind of political reform through the courts. 
The same thing is true for direct democracy. Most states have limits on the kinds of ballot measures that can be put on the ballot. For example, in Oregon, which is very typical of the states that do have direct democracy, there's a single issue requirement. You can't put a ballot measure on the ballot that has multiple changes to the system. But what it means is it limits the sort of breadth of political reform that you can achieve. And if you're going to change the system fundamentally, you might need to change two or three aspects of it. With a ballot measure, you would have to do two or three different ballot measures and they would all have to win. So that is an obstacle for the avenue of direct democracy. Direct democracy and the judiciary are both, I would say, the easiest in terms of getting things done, but they are the narrowest. Well, I can't say I'm not a little confused, but I guess I do see that while there are multiple opportunities to achieve political reform, to change the system from within the system, there are difficulties associated with all of them. And so I I guess I'm less surprised that we don't have political reform happening all the time. What would you say is the current state of political reform in America? How likely are we to get changes to the system from within the system? And are these changes really going to impact how American democracy functions? Yeah, well, that is a great question. And uh, what I would say is the state of political reform in America is that there is a lot of energy to change certain things. And I will say that probably the top priority is getting rid of gerrymandering, changing our system of drawing the electoral maps that are used to elect our state legislators and our members of Congress. Taking those out of the hands of the politicians themselves is probably the top priority of political reformers in America right now. That's already happening, and it's been achieved in almost a dozen states at this point. That means that we've got that going, and it's probably going to continue going. Now, of course, only 25 or so states have direct democracy, and it's very difficult to achieve the change from a gerrymandered system to a non-gerrymandered through the legislature itself. So we're not likely to see independent districting commissions spread to all 50 states. There is, of course, at this moment, also a movement to make it harder for people to vote in certain states, to reduce the number of ballot boxes, to restrict early voting, to uh, have uh, ID requirements. All of these are political reforms. They're political reforms that actually are intended to make it harder to vote, not easier to vote. Not all political reforms pull in the same direction, right? Some people want to reform our system to make it easier for people to vote. Other people want to reform our system to make it harder to vote. In the situation where the goal is to make it harder to vote, the reason why politicians want that or might want that is because they think that means it's going to be even easier for them to continue winning. And I think that we're seeing success on this front. This is not a particularly inspiring form of political reform, making it harder for people to vote, but it is a change to the system from within the system. So it fits my definition of political reform. I think that we're going to continue seeing some movement in this direction for a little while until voters push back against it and activists push back against it. There has been pushback and it's interesting to see this sort of tug of war between the two factions of political reformers who want to make voting harder and who want to make voting easier. And I think that that is also much like the gerrymandering question. That's kind of the hot issue in political reform right now. Now, obviously, if you make voting either easier or harder, 
that is going to change how American democracy functions. And it's going to change the outcome of elections, particularly in a situation where we have really close elections are becoming more and more common. Small tweaks to the nature of the electoral system will have a potentially big impact on the outcome of those elections. And because elected officials do most of the regulating in our country at the federal level, all of it, there's no direct democracy at the federal level, the outcome of elections will have huge impacts on all other areas of policy reform. Are we going to get further healthcare reform? What is tax reform going to look like? What kind of educational reform are we going to get at the state level? All of those questions are going to be decided by elected officials. And so if we're seeing changes to the electoral system, getting rid of gerrymandering in some states, but not all, uh, making it harder to vote in some states, making it easier to vote in other states, then we're going to see different political outcomes. And, you know, it's th things are moving in a lot of directions at once right now. And there are a lot of things that are actually going on in political reform. It's, it's, it's a quite exciting time to be keeping an eye on political reform in America. And um, I'm glad to be able to sit down and talk with you about it. Well, thank you, Dr. Miller, for your time, as always, and your insights. We will probably be talking again soon sometime. Anytime. You know where I am.